the award-winning Your Financial Editor program on 930 WFMD. News from the worlds of business and finance with your financial editor, Chris Murray. Good Saturday to you. I am Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And, of course, as a podcast, you can get it at uh, Apple Podcast. Uh, hope your weekend's going well. We have a good program laid out for you, some interesting top stories from this past week, some interesting data, including the big jobs report yesterday. And also uh, really looking forward to uh, having a conversation with my guests this morning, Mr. Christopher Leonard. He's a business reporter who has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Bloomberg, Business Week, you name it. And he is the New York Times bestselling author uh, as well. We're going to be talking about his new book, a very interesting subject matter. Uh, it's the Federal Reserve, and he's written this book uh, titled The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. So uh, you've heard me say it for, well, over a year now um, about, you know, how poorly the Federal Reserve was reacting to inflation, uh, throwing out that um, worthless word that they tried to use, transitory. That was an epic failure. Um, and then all of a sudden you hear a couple weeks ago uh, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, saying that they're ready to raise rates uh, expeditiously. So how you go from transitory to expediting rate increases uh, really boggles the mind, but it also shows um, how out of touch they seem to be and about the damage that they've done. And we'll explain that, how that actually worked with monetary policy and interest rates, etc. So all that coming up in just a little bit. I uh, hope you're able to stay with us for the program and uh, and enjoy it. Well, Biden announced Thursday that the United States is going to release an unprecedented 180 million barrels of oil from our strategic petroleum reserve. Um, so that's going to happen over the next uh, six months. Uh, the oil is going to be put into the market at a pace of one million barrels per day. On average, for the next six months, as I said, that's going to start in the month of May. Uh, this administration plans to restock the reserves when oil prices come down. So uh, good luck with that to try to prepare for future emergencies um, and also to provide the right signal to the market is the way the administration put it. I'll tell you, man, I've been saying this and uh, it's the same with the Obama administration. I don't know who is pulling the strings and working behind the curtain, but they do not know what they're doing in one aspect. In the other aspect, they know exactly what they're doing. And uh, it's it's to damage the country from the inside out. And uh, those that are less fortunate are the punching bags. That's that's uh, There's no doubt about that. Also on Thursday, interesting to see that OPEC, stuck to their existing deal for May output. How about that? So even though the administration has made calls to, uh, like, say, the Saudis, who wouldn't take that phone call, by the way, and I'm talking about Biden, uh, they won't take. Uh, when have you heard of a country not taking the sitting leader of the free world's telephone call? It's unheard of. 
Uh, but that's exactly what's happening. So it was no surprise they wouldn't, you know, uh, fulfill his his desire for them to pump more oil that, uh, you know, that the entire OPEC uh, cartel um, is not going to budge. They're going to keep output where it is. They're going to try to keep uh, oil prices high because they know that we're not uh, uh, energy independent anymore. So they've got us over a barrel, pun intended. So anyway, this is the third time that the Biden administration has tapped into our strategic petroleum reserves just in the last six months. So what's happened over the last six months? Prices have gone up. Oil's gone up, gasoline, diesel, home heating oil, you name it. Um, And to date, they've released 90 million barrels from our oil reserve. Remember, we pay for that. So even though the Trump administration did a fantastic job, actually, in filling the strategic petroleum reserve to the top when oil prices were at record lows, um, that was our money, which I was actually happy with. I'm like, wow, we're actually buying low. We're getting a good deal for our tax dollars in this particular situation. And it made me feel good. It really did. Now, this, again, they don't know anything about prices or capital markets. So them saying they're going to replenish uh, is, I don't want to say it's a joke, but um, I wouldn't hold my breath to see, number one, that they do replenish, and number two, that they do it at a price anywhere that we saw the last time it was filled to the brim. Interesting uh, senior account executive at the Price Futures Group um, in the futures uh, 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 profession um, said, what a coincidence that Biden announced the biggest release from the uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve ever on the day that OPEC was shunning the Biden administration by sticking by their uh, 400,000 barrel a day script Flynn wrote. So um, yet OPEC will, they're going to laugh it off. They know that this move will only increase the demand for their product. And he also wrote that they know that it will further encourage less U.S. oil production as it will discourage oil investment uh, going forward. Sad, sad. You know, last week we were talking about uh, Maduro the uh, the the ruthless dictator murderer down in Venezuela. We actually had state officials down in Carcass, Venezuela, uh, trying to negotiate uh, an oil deal with them. That's terrible, filthy, grimy oil that uh, can only be used for certain things, certain petrochemicals. Um, so again, instead of doing it here. The United States controlling it, us having control of our own energy, doing it the best way, argue that the cleanest, most efficient, safest way. Argue, I mean, I dare any of these uh, people with whatever the weather, climate change, global warming, uh, eco terrorist, whatever you are, argue that. It's going to be done. Venezuela is going to do it. The Middle East is going to do it. China is going to do it. And we do it better. We do it cleaner. 
We do it safer. So your arguments are hollow. Um, and, 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 and again, our transfer of wealth, where our money is actually going, who it's going to support, the countries, the dictators, the killers, the assassins. But you just stick with that uh, whatever carbon emission uh, argument that you have, even though you won't debate it live fairly with a moderator because you know you'll get waxed. But uh, in any event, that's what we heard from the administration on the um, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And then on top of that, that you saw the administration's proposed uh, fiscal budget year 2023 budget there again involves billions of dollars in this is such an overused word climate related spending including 11 billion dollars for international climate finance where do you think that money's going to go what kind of freaks going to end up with that what kind of damage will be done with that 11 billion dollars as well as multi-billion dollar investment said to advance equity and equality globally. Again, that's all, that's a joke. That's a joke. That's just let me steal your money, use it the way we want to, and have more control over you while making your life miserable with higher cost. That's all that is. I mean, equity, equality globally, what, what is, does that, I mean, it, it, it doesn't even make any sense, but it's in that budget of $5.8 trillion, as well as the Office of Management and Budget, their 156-page summary um, showing a significant portion of prospective spending would be in the name of climate and environmental justice. I'll tell you, if you're buying into this, boy, be careful who you're listening to, what you're reading, what you're watching. Make sure your eyes and ears are open, right? As a matter of fact, a search of the Federal Election Commission filings from January 1st of 2018 to the end of 2020 revealed that all donations from people who listed Ecological Society of America or the Ecological um, Society of America their, or as their employer, all of their contributions went to Democratic candidates and causes, such as the Biden Victory Fund, Biden for President, and the online fundraising platform Act Blue. There again... This money comes out, goes to these crazy organizations where you really wonder what they accomplish, if anything, that's good for the average American, especially the hardworking American. So they get money and then in turn they uh, spin around and that's our money. That's that's our tax money. And then they spin around and uh, put it back in the funnel through these uh, these donations in the budget that I mentioned, uh, the EPA's discretionary funding would be boosted to $11.9 billion. That's a 29% increase from last year. And they want to enlarge the Environmental Protection Agency staff by 1,900 more full-time positions. 
I don't know if you've seen any of it, but I've seen a couple of these uh, EPA projects, and they're a joke. They are done very, very poorly. Sometimes uh, just the opposite result occurs, but because it's done under this uh, climate guise and they want to regulate a mud puddle if they can, and I'm not exaggerating that, exaggerating that. Um, but we're seeing all this being um, addressed with your tax money. So, again, that, that's why we bring it up. That's why we talk about it, because I know the people that listen to the program work hard, have pride, have dignity, um, pay a lot in taxes. And they have over the years, even if you're retired. Uh, It's still an important issue to you because of property taxes, gas taxes, sales tax, you name it. So um, the one thing that was also very interesting uh, this week, and we had just talked about this guy in particular the last couple weeks um, in detail. But, I mean, we've talked about him for years and years. BlackRock, their uh, founder and CEO, Larry Fink, declared that the Russian-Ukraine war is bringing the era, era of globalization to an end. That's a massive position for this guy to take. Um, and, and there was a chief economist I saw that wrote, there's a lot of talk about countries going back to local production and the era of globalization and long overseas supply chains is over. So... What is Fink, one of the founders, again, of the world's largest investment management firm, BlackRock, with nearly $10 trillion under management, talking about when he says it's the end of globalization? He put it in his annual investor letter. Uh, He remains a believer in the benefits of globalization because that's just him. You know, he wants to be in that elitist group. Um, he wants to fly his private jet to uh, Davos, Switzerland for the World Economic Forum. Um, he wants to sit in the room with uh, the most important people that he could weasel his way into being around um, and control as much of not just, again, the country, but the globe, globalization, as possible. But he's saying the Russian invasion on, uh, of Ukraine has put an end to the globalization that we've experienced over the last three decades. Uh, again, that was in his letter. Um, and he talked about uh, such decoupling first gathered momentum as the administration of uh, former President Donald Trump fought a trade war with China. Um, so a lot of people obviously see this as positive. They're, they haven't a approved of the globalization. It is uh, a kind of a strategy for the elitist. Um, is global trade and free trade good? Absolutely. Is relying on what we've already learned as uh, one of the benefits, uh, unfortunately, that came from such a, a terrible thing, the virus, when it made its way here, uh, was the supply chain issues, who you rely on, what you don't have access to. So uh, you got these guys like uh, Fink. They can't be trusted. They're kind of wannabes. I mentioned the globalist elitist. You've got these politicians involved, the, quote, consultants, unquote, who have sold their souls 
um, and I mean the consultants from America, who have sold their souls for the last three decades or so. You've got uh, the virus. You've got communist China, Russia, um, those here in America who want to, again, destroy the country from the inside out. That's kind of the globalization type of thing. Um, and we're not a, we're we're not good at it. Um, you know, these guys want to play and want to be a part of it, but we're weak and we're seen as weak. So we're not good at uh, being in that, uh, you know, in that circle right now. So I, I do hope that uh, Larry Fink is correct. I think he is, that people have seen through this whole globalization thing um, and that, you know, that they would call it a new world order, et cetera. So, um, I think it's fantastic. I hope w we are done with it. And also, I'm not a big uh, poll person. You, you guys know that if you've been listening over the last 24-plus years. But there was one this week that was no big surprise, the Gallup survey. It was published on Tuesday, and it shows that the uh, you know these rising consumer prices are the top economic concern for Americans. Um in all, a majority of Americans, 59 percent, said they worry about cost of living expenses a great deal, according to the poll, which was conducted March 1st through the 18th. And uh, they utilized 1,017 adults in the survey. And it also showed the people that, uh, you know, don't make a whole lot of money. They're the ones that are most concerned, which uh, that's obvious to see. No big surprise there, right? They're being hurt uh, tremendously with all of this inflation and the uh, spending and the uh, misuse of, of, of taxes, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it's a shame. It really is. We're going to uh, take a quick break, get some um, economic data on the other side before we get to our subject of the, uh, the, the Federal Reserve and the book, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American economy. We're going to be talking about that. Our latest white paper for you, it's complimentary. Go to murrayfinancialgroup.com. Will the Biden presidency influence stock markets? Obviously, we're already seeing some of that. The white paper goes into it. We've had a lot of people uh, going to murrayfinancialgroup.com and downloading that complimentary uh, white paper. It's on the homepage. You just click the button and it goes right to your email. So uh, help yourself on that. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And as a podcast, go to Apple Podcast. And uh, when you look at the uh, economic data this week, quite a bit. You know, it's a pretty busy week. We saw a lagging indicator in housing. Um, the uh, 
S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Index came out, and it was from numbers from January of 21 to January of 22. And nationally, uh, in the 10 and 20 biggest markets, uh, we saw prices climb quite a bit, up 19.2% year over year, according to that report. Um, And, you know, that's larger than what the consensus was calling for. No big surprise to see uh, home prices grew most quickly in Phoenix and Tampa and Miami. Um, And then the slowest gains, of course, were in Chicago, crime, Minneapolis, crime, and Washington, D.C., crime. So um, the national numbers, the year-over-year increase in January is the fourth largest in 35 years, according to Uh, The Standard & Poor's Dow Jones uh, Index is managing director. So obviously uh, housing continued to stay strong, even though that, again, was a a lagging indicator. Consumer confidence uh, edged up in March. So we saw it go from a reading of 105.7 to 107.2. However, Americans are facing the highest inflation since 1982, that's outpacing uh, your wage gains out there. And it's uh, it, even though that report was up inside the report, uh, you saw those concerns. Um, and it's something that's very, very worrisome to uh, to a lot of people. And then you look also the important data that I saw this week was consumer uh, income and spending numbers. Spending was only up. 0.2% in the month of February. That was less than what was anticipated. Um, and look, one thing to remember is consumer spending accounts for more than two-thirds of our U.S. economic activity. So seeing it slow down is no big surprise. Number one, we had called for that. Things were slowing going into the end of the year. Um, but then, you know, we see these numbers at the beginning of the year. Um, but, yeah, just two-tenths of a percent increase in February. Incomes were only up a half of a percent. Then you look at the core uh, inflation gauge in that report, which the Federal Reserve looks at. It was up 5.4 percent year over year. So, again, putting even more pressure on the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates. And then yesterday what we saw was um, the jobs report come in a little light, uh, 431,000 jobs added in the month of March. Uh, that missed the 480,000, 490,000 forecast that was out there by economists. Um, so uh, we're still, you know, millions of jobs below where we were before the virus made its way here. And um, that's really a shame. So hopefully that'll change. But uh, we're seeing, you know, some improvement, but nothing like we really need it to be. Uh, go to murrayfinancialgroup.com. Right there on the home page, uh, our latest um, white paper, it's complimentary. Will the Biden presidency influence stock markets? We're obviously seeing it already. It goes into detail. And um, I think you'll find it informative. And when we come back, we'll be talking with my guest, Mr. Christopher Leonard, about the Federal Reserve.
It's your financial editor with Chris Murray on 930 WFMD. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And, of course, as a podcast, you can go to Apple Podcasts and listen to it uh, there. Share it with somebody that you care about. And um, really looking forward to our conversation today. My guest uh, joining us today is uh, Mr. Christopher Leonard. He's a business reporter whose work has appeared in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Bloomberg, uh, you name it, and uh, you've probably seen and read his uh, his work. He's a best-selling author um, as well, uh, New York Times best-selling author. And uh, his latest work is uh, really, really interesting. It comes right into our wheelhouse. Uh, it's about the Federal Reserve, and his book is titled The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American economy. And as you know, we've uh, had the program, I I founded it back in 1997, so we're over 24 years now, and we've talked extensively over those years about the Federal Reserve and and really witnessed uh, big changes there. This book uh, really, um, it, it really helps you understand what the Fed does and how it does it and its impact and things of that nature. We're just going to scratch the surface today, but I'm looking forward to doing that. Uh, so we'll welcome in our guest, Mr. Christopher Leonard. Good morning, Chris. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I, I appreciate you taking time out of your uh, schedule to be with us. So uh, the book is The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. What was your motivation for writing this book? My motivation is that, you know, as a reporter, I'm talking to all kinds of people all the time. And back in 2016, I interviewed this guy who's really, really sharp and trading in financial markets. And he was explaining to me what the Federal Reserve had been doing since about 2010 and how much it had dramatically reshaped financial markets and how really experimental and unprecedented the Fed's programs were. And I thought, this guy's got to be crazy. Like one of the headlines he gave me is that the Federal Reserve had basically printed 300 years worth of money between 2008, 2014. And, And I just thought, I need to understand this better, and I think it's important to write a book about it so everybody can understand it better. So so at its core, this book is a history of what the Federal Reserve has done between 2010 and 2020, which has really been a, a remarkable, unique, and unprecedented era in Fed history. Yeah, like you say, unprecedented. I mean, the, the bank was founded uh, back in uh, 1913, I believe, the early 1900s, and just kind of plotted its way along until it got to this very uh, important inflection point that you write about in your book and that you just talked about. Um, before I get any further, uh, I see the book is uh, is uh, for Joan and John Miller, and you thank them for the support that they've given you and the example that they have set. Who are they? Uh, well, Joan and John Miller are my mother and father-in-law, actually. Uh, I'm, I got married in 2001, and... Um, you know, it's just interesting you bring that up because they've been like parents to me. Uh, you know, John was born and raised in Springfield, Missouri, joined the Army at a young age, 
uh, was career military. His wife, Joan, was with him the entire time. Obviously, they're still alive, thank goodness. And to me, they reflected this certain type of theory about American citizenship. They're both very engaged, committed citizens. And that's one of the things I'm trying to write about in this book. You know, the main character of this book is a guy named Thomas Honig, who is a Federal Reserve official who tried to stop the policies in the book. And I'm trying to talk about this sort of tradition in American politics of sort of small-c conservatism or, or, or this, like, pragmatic wrestling with, with these dilemmas we have, like balancing you know, the need for free markets with the need for a stable society. And what's so important here, I think, is that the Federal Reserve is so powerful, and it's become insulated from politics. It has kind of removed itself from from the public debates. So it's a long way of saying I dedicated the book to my mother and father-in-law because they they seem to kind of embody the, 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 the political tradition I was trying to write about in this book. Excellent. No, I appreciate that uh, that that kind of backstory. It's always helpful for our listeners uh, as they consider uh, picking up the book. Um, now, you just mentioned, uh, you know, the word power and just how powerful the Federal Reserve is. That's something I think that, again, if you can give us just an overview of the type of power that uh, that that this institution wields. Yeah, it's uh, astounding. And that's why I think so much of the conversation around the Fed can veer into sounding like conspiracy theory because we created the Fed in 1913 and we designed it, when I say we, the United States Congress and the president designed it in a specific way. They wanted the Fed to do the all-important job of creating our currency, okay? That thing we call a dollar is actually a Federal Reserve note. And, and managing a currency is such an important job, and sometimes you have to make hard decisions that push the economy into recession, and sometimes you need to think a really long term. And they said, you know, we want to insulate this institution from democratic pressures. You know, we don't want the leaders of the Fed to have to run for re-election. So they designed it to create a committee that runs the central bank that is really not not accountable to voters. So. You've got 12 members that sit on this very powerful policy committee called the Federal Open Markets Committee. Uh, They meet every six weeks in Washington, D.C. And how do I state the level of power that they have? I mean, the Federal Reserve is the only institution on planet Earth that can create new dollars out of thin air. Only the Fed can do that. And, And the Fed has used that power to an unprecedented degree over the last decade, as I mentioned, printing centuries worth of money in a few years, and that reshapes our economy. And and sometimes the effect is so big, it's hard to see the forest for the trees. But this just has a huge effect on, you know, whether we have periodic financial market crashes or whether we have massive inflation that everybody has to pay. So you've got this committee of 12 people making these hyper-consequential decisions about the shape of our economy. So it's a tremendous amount of power. Yeah, it is. And, you know, one of the things uh, I remember sharing here on the program after the horrific uh, terrorist attacks uh, back uh, in 2001 
was uh, obviously everybody was focused on what uh, President Bush was going to say and what his response was going to be uh, to those terrorist attacks. But in a very similar way, the world's attention also focused on um, Alan Greenspan as he walked into a room uh, with a handful of elected officials, congressmen and senators, and closed two big wooden doors behind him. I mean, people really also wanted to know what's the Federal Reserve Bank of America going to do in response to this, uh, this you know, pending crisis with the economy. Yes, yes. And again, it's behind thick, closed doors. And that's how the Fed operates. It's just a matter of record that the Fed committees and the chairperson meet in secret and make these decisions. And I really want to emphasize that the dynamic you just pointed out of the world really paying attention to what Alan Greenspan is doing in response to the terrorist attacks, that dynamic only intensifies over the years and becomes more entrenched. And what I mean by that is, is by the time we reach 2008-2009, you know, the big, big crisis in American life is the financial crisis, the crash of 08. And I kind of write about that. You know, the book starts in, in the, the shadow of the financial crisis. The book starts in 2010. But one of the key points is that in the crash of 08-09, the Fed was able to print a trillion dollars before Congress had even put on its shoes to get out the door in the morning. I mean, the, the Fed moved really aggressively and really quickly, printing money, pumping money into the banking system, while Congress was sort of left to do the messy work of democracy, which is much more time-consuming. And, and so we kind of, there's been this trend to rely more and more and more on the Fed to try to tackle our financial problems, while Congress sort of has the luxury of doing nothing. But what I'm trying to say here is when you look over the last decade, that is a bad model. Printing money is not the way to drive true prosperity. So we got to figure out how to govern ourselves again through democratic institutions rather than just the central bank. Yeah, no big amen to that. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And I hope people um, will take time to pick up your book, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. Um, and I just encourage you to do that, folks, because um, it's it's very educational. Um, it's very informative, enlightening, um, and it'll help you see things better. And uh, I think to make better decisions and um, and, and and just help you in, in different areas. And we'll tell you how to get the book on the other side of uh, of the break. I have to squeeze a quick break here in here for you, and then we'll continue our conversation with New York Times bestselling author uh, Christopher Leonard. Stay tuned.
Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And as a podcast, just go to uh, Apple Podcasts and you can grab it there. Uh, Wrapping up our conversation with our guest this morning, Mr. Christopher Leonard. He is a New York Times bestselling author. You've probably seen his writings uh, and his reporting work in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Fortune, uh, Bloomberg, Business Week, etc. Um, and he's written this book called The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. And it's it's really good. I would encourage that you uh, that you pick yourself up a copy. And actually, uh, Chris, what's the best way to get your book? Uh, you know, you can just Google the Lords of Easy Money, and I am rather agnostic about how people buy it. Local bookstore is great. Barnes & Noble is great. There's this cool website called Biblio that allows you to order books from local booksellers. Amazon is a, you know, crushing monopoly in my business that mistreats publishers and authors. They're sort of like the Walmart, so I tend to shy away from them. But, heck, if Amazon is the easy way for you to get books, Getting the book, getting books in general, I think, is the important thing. So pretty easy to find uh, if you just Google the words of easy money. Excellent. Um, so one of the things I want to talk about before we run out of time, you talked about the Federal Reserve printing an unprecedented amount of money um, and and how they've been reacting over the last decade plus with zero interest rate policy, uh, you know, $9 trillion on their uh, balance sheet now. One of the things I think is obvious is the Fed has a credibility problem. How do you think they correct that? Good Lord, what a great question. What a big question. And first of all, you know, I'm relatively, I don't have an opinion about whether it's good or bad on its face to print all this money. That alone isn't necessarily bad. It's the effects. Printing all this cash pushed our economy in a certain direction. It dramatically benefited the very, very rich over everybody else. It created a lot of fragility in our financial system by creating huge asset bubbles. And it dramatically increased the levels of debt in this country, households, corporations, government, you name it. That's why I say the Fed broke the American economy. But maybe most dangerously, the Fed, by doing this, has trapped itself. It has committed itself to perpetual accelerated money printing because anytime the fed now tries to pull back and try to pull back some of this cash is created or tries to raise interest rates the economy starts to crash so that puts us today with the credibility problem you just discussed and it's it's deep and it's severe because right now what we're seeing as you know is very hot and heavy price inflation Prices are rising north of 8% year over year at the biggest level since the 1980s. And there's tremendous pressure on the Fed to do something to reduce this inflation. There's probably no more important issue right now. But everybody has watched the Fed over the last decade, and people know that the Fed cannot do the one thing it needs to do right now, which is to hike interest rates and pull back on this new money it's printed through a program called quantitative easing. So there's a huge credibility problem when you've got the chairman of the Fed, Jay Powell, standing up now publicly, you know, first saying, oh, don't worry about inflation, it's transitory, then being proven 100% wrong on that hurts the credibility. But the deeper issue is people on Wall Street know the Fed 
cannot hike rates without causing massive economic disruptions. And the Fed has shown a complete lack of willingness to harm the interests of Wall Street by hiking rates. So I just got to say, limbo is the word I use to kind of describe where we are right now. Jay Powell is rattling the saber and saying, oh, we're going to hike rates, we're going to fight inflation. Uh, Wall Street really doesn't take him seriously. And so we're in a position whereby, you know, inflation could continue to increase uh, as the Fed kind of very, very slowly tightens. But if the Fed does tighten quickly, it's going to have to basically pay the bill that has run up over the last decade. So, you know, we're just in a very um, fragile kind of volatile position right now, and it's really hard to see where things even are going to be in the next six months, honestly. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. And like you said, and, and this is something that, and I don't take any pleasure in saying we were right, but, you know, I talked about this over a year ago on the program when they started using the word uh, transitory. It was obvious that that wasn't the case. I mean, you know, you you look up transitory. This wasn't going to be this inflation problem wasn't going to be a temporary issue. But yet they kept using that word. And it's that kind of word to make people dummy down or feel stupid because they might not know exactly what the Fed means with that. And then the next thing, you know, a couple weeks ago, you know, when the minutes came out from the last Federal Reserve uh, meeting, you see that he or no, I'm sorry, it's when he was testifying before Congress. Jay Powell used the word expeditiously. Well, you don't go from transitory to, yeah, we're going to raise rates expeditiously, um, you know, in a in a really easy fashion. But yet he was trying to make it seem that way. I think, to be blunt, there is a level of dishonesty in the communication. Um, and, and, and to me, the dishonesty always seems to break one way, which is that the Fed is trying to present itself as being the sort of all-knowing, in-control entity uh, and downplaying the kind of mistakes it has made, huge mistakes, giant mistakes. I really document a lot of them in the book. I mean, just bad forecasts, bad models. Uh, Golly, I mean, the Fed has been getting inflation wrong for a decade. It's not just now. But I think they have this feeling around Jay Powell that, like, if they get up and and say, yeah, we had no clue uh, how bad this was going to be, it'll cause a panic. Uh, so they have to speak in this way where they say things like you just recounted, that we're going to raise rates expeditiously. Um, I would like to point out that one of the big, I think what I'm really trying to bring to people in this book is, is a history of the last decade to kind of illuminate where we are. And when when Jay Powell talks about expeditiously raising rates, we need to remember the Fed decided it made a policy decision to keep interest rates at zero for seven years between 2008 and roughly 2016. And then it barely was able to raise rates up to two and a half percent. Then it started slashing rates again, even before COVID hit, it had to slash rates again. So basically rates have been at zero with a brief interim for about a decade. And Jay Powell is talking about hiking rates to the, I say this sarcastically, to the sky-high level of maybe 2.7% next year. 
And, and so even if the Fed follows this so-called aggressive path, it's claiming it's going to follow. We're talking 2.7% interest rates getting thrown against inflation at 8%. You know, to put that in context, back in the 80s, the Fed had to raise rates close to 20% to fight uh, inflation, which was stronger, okay? But what I, you know, really it's nice to kind of see through a lot of the rhetoric the Fed is putting forward and, and look at things clearly. And what you see is, again, um, the Fed is in a, a, a quagmire of its own making on monetary policy right now. Yeah, yep, exactly. And like you said, you go back to the 70s and 80s uh, when Paul Volcker did, you know, extremely, um, you know, unconventional things. I mean, he was the man to, you know, to kind of take on the wave of inflation. The guy was burned in effigy, but he did what was necessary. Whereas now I just think there's, and in your book, you know, I I noticed in the table of contents, Fed speak is one of the, uh, one of the chapters there. And again, it, I would encourage everybody to get it. Uh, The name of the book is the Lords of easy money, how the federal reserve broke the American economy, especially for the ordinary folks. Um, in my opinion. And again, for those wholesome people, uh, Chris, like your, you know, your mother and father-in-law, Mr. and Miss Miller, they grew up the right way. They do the right things and they aren't on Wall Street and they are dealing with energy and apparel and electronics and automotive and food increases that are real every day smacking them in the face because again the fed was i think they were absent for uh, way too long yeah um and, and i just want to point out that these extraordinary policies of the last decade completely bypassed almost entirely bypassed wage earners in america by which i mean to say you know the fed expends its power in an extraordinary way and and it was a program of zero percent interest rates and money printing that benefited the biggest of the big banks and the richest of the rich while wage earners really did just sort of uh, tread water and that's one of the biggest trends i think we need to understand in our economy absolutely and that and more is in the book folks pick it up the lords of easy money how the federal reserve broke the american economy uh, pick it up, read it. You'll be the uh, the smartest person at the uh, picnic over the weekend. Okay, Chris, thanks so much for taking time to talk with you. Uh, talk with us. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right, enjoy the rest of the weekend. That does it for us. We're out of time. I, I you know, pick up the book. It, it's really interesting. I haven't gotten through the whole thing, but what I have, uh, and I understand a lot of the stuff, but also it just it reminds me of things. I learned some things, so I would encourage you to grab it. The Lords of Easy Money: How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy by Christopher Leonard. Um, and if you can't find it, if you're driving, don't try to write it down. Don't be unsafe. Just drop me an email or call or whatever and we'll get you uh that info and um and you can and then you can you know pick the book up so that does it like i said uh we will talk with you on the morning news express with bob miller and ryan hedrick 550 650 750 those are live calls every weekday morning when we do the business update and then we'll be back here uh next saturday for another edition of the your financial editor program so have a great re- uh weekend this is is Chris Murray wishing you and your family financial success.
Past editions of this program are available in the audio vault at WFMD.com. News Radio 930. WFMD Frederick. A connoisseur media radio station. 7 o'clock.